0: We're going to be continuing this morning in our teaching series in James called Born Again Behavior. Uh, Last Sunday, we focused on the middle of chapter three, and we learned that the tongue has destructive power, staining power, and uncontrollable power, and that no human being can tame the tongue apart from the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. In the final section of chapter 3, James talks about wisdom, which is a subject he previously mentioned back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Now we need to remember that in chapter 3, James was addressing a specific group within the congregation he wrote to. He was addressing here the brothers who were basically aspiring to become teachers of God's Word. And we see that in verse 1. Many within this group, however, did not possess the proper motive, uh, the proper godly speech, or the proper godly conduct to actually become teachers of God's Word in the church. And this is precisely why James warned them in verse 1, And proceeded to describe in detail what an aspiring teacher of God's word must exhibit. An aspiring teacher of God's word must exhibit maturity in speech and the ability to keep his or her, and I say her because we do have Sunday school teachers. We do have women teaching women in these sorts of things. An aspiring teacher, whether it be male or female, must exhibit maturity in speech and the ability to keep his or her tongue in check. That is basically what we focused on in verses 2 through 12 of chapter 3. In the final section, James describes something else an aspiring teacher of God's Word must exhibit. And really, by default, all Christians, not just teachers of the Word of God, but pre-existing teachers and just regular Christians, and that is conduct that affirms heavenly wisdom. And that is the title of of today's sermon. Please take your Bibles and turn over to James chapter 3. We will be focusing this morning on verses 13 through 18. Once more, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. I think it's befitting that we pray before we actually get to work. Father, we pray that by the the very Holy Spirit that you open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive the truth And that as as we are pierced by the truth, as we are convicted by the truth and by the Holy Spirit, we pray that our earnest, our most earnest desire would be to have heavenly wisdom and and to operate in accordance with heavenly wisdom at all times. That that would be our strongest desire. And that you would, as, as we plea and cry out to you, because we're encouraged to do that in this very letter, that those who, who, who need wisdom can call out to you for it, and you will give it to those who call upon you and ask for it, provided that they don't have a double mind. We pray that as we cry out for that, because we desire to live lives and to navigate life in such a way that brings you maximum glory, and that does not destroy our joy, we pray as we cry out that you graciously and kindly give it. Give, it, give your wisdom to us freely. And we know that you will. And so teach us about wisdom. Give it to us if we call out for it. And may you be glorified in everything that is said this morning and from this moment forward. Help us with this scripture here. Teach us and train us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pick up where we left off last Sunday. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13, this is what James says to these aspiring teachers of God's Word. This is what he says to them next. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And then he makes this statement. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What James does is he begins this next next section by basically... He's he's putting a question, he's asking a question and putting a kind of test before his audience, an immediate audience being the guys who want to be teachers. This is what he's doing. He's sort of asking them a testing and probing question. He's asking them if they are something and then to prove it through their actual conduct. But before we actually unpack this verse, which has got some good meat to it, Before we really go any further here, we need to to deal with the subject of wisdom. We need to clarify a few things. We need to get a proper definition and and, and, and kind of um, blow out that subject a little bit and gain a better understanding of it before we really dive into this text. I want to unpack four truths about wisdom for you before we go any further. And firstly, I'd like to provide you with Um, a proper and right biblical definition of what it is. Most people, I think, today, and and, and including Christians, think that wisdom has to do with gaining a deeper understanding. They think that it has to do with knowing God more, and maybe knowing humanity more, and maybe knowing the world more, and maybe knowing and knowing and knowing. It has to do with knowledge and knowing and gaining knowledge That is not wisdom. Wisdom is not the pursuit of knowledge. Wisdom is not the possession of knowledge. I think the two are tied together, but they're vastly different from each other. So when you think of wisdom, don't think of attaining knowledge. Knowledge and wisdom are two different things. A a A deeper understanding of things is not wisdom, it's knowledge, it's more knowledge. Wisdom is different in that it is the implementation of knowledge. It is the use of knowledge. It is the employment of knowledge. It is the living out of knowledge. It's basically, wisdom has to do with putting to good use what you know and what you understand. I like what R. Kent Hughes wrote at this point in my commentary. He said, Being wise does not mean we understand everything that is going on because of our superior knowledge, but that we do the right thing as life comes along. That's just a really, really good explanation between the differences or distinctions between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is like, and I'll give you some scenarios, knowledge is like knowing that you're in a trial. right? You you know that you've entered into a trial. All the marks of a trial are there. There is suffering, there is difficulty, there is struggle, these things. You know that you're in a trial. That's knowledge. That's knowing that you're in a trial. But wisdom is responding to that trial in a way that honors God. Knowledge knows wisdom is response. Think of it like that. And maybe for some of you guys who like to work on cars and stuff like that, I know Randy's fixed my car a zillion times, but knowledge is like having a disassembled engine in front of you. Wisdom shows you how to reassemble it. Knowledge is like knowing that you have a fast car. How many of you have a fast car? I do not. When you step on it, it kind of clunks out. Knowledge is like knowing that you have a fast car or a good car, a car that has four doors. It's, knowledge has to do with knowing about your car, but wisdom is the ability to drive it safely. Knowledge is like knowing that you have to drive to L.A. tomorrow morning. Maybe some of you are doing another Disney trip, or maybe some of you are visiting today. We have a gentleman in the back who's down from San Diego area. Knowledge is knowing that you have to drive to L.A. tomorrow, but wisdom is the ability to choose the right highway and make all the right turns so that you can arrive at your destination. Wisdom is the implementation of knowledge, do you see? Maybe, maybe uh, something that comes to your mind, it comes to mind is, is Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 3, 6 through 9. What did he do? He, he had been appointed as king over Israel. He knew that he had to lead God's people, but he wasn't exactly sure how to do that. It was a, a daunting task for him. I mean, to run a kingdom is one thing, to lead millions of people is another. To have, uh, you know, your, your father was a conquering king. He had defeated so many enemies. There's the threat of that. There is so much involved with leading a nation. And he wasn't exactly sure how to lead the Israelites. And what does he do? He... How does he respond to his predicament? He prayed to God for wisdom. God, please grant me wisdom to lead your people. And God kindly and graciously gave him the wisdom that he needed to do that. In fact, next to Jesus, there's never been a wiser person in the history of the world. Of course, if you look at the latter part of Solomon's life, there was a lot of folly. But he was a very wise person. He was given the wisdom to Lead. So what did wisdom become for Solomon? Wisdom became Solomon's guide for how to lead God's people. He knew he had a monumental, massive task. Wisdom provided him with what he needed to be able to execute that task. Maybe you could think of it like this, and I've already said this, knowledge knows, wisdom guides. So there's the distinctions, there's the differences. That's the first thing, which is, we're talking about the difference between knowledge and wisdom in the first thing. Secondly, you need to know this about wisdom. There are different kinds of wisdom. There are different kinds or types of wisdom. In fact, this very scripture that we're studying today presents two types. There is earthly wisdom, okay, which really isn't wisdom at all, but James tells us that it is a form of wisdom. There is earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is is evil because it belongs to the earth, which is what? Evil. We we live on a fallen planet. It's a fallen world. It's completely tainted by, by sin. There's no area, no person that's untouched by that. It is an evil world that is literally... Dominated by Satan, the prince of the power of the air. It's an evil place, and the wisdom that comes out of this world and that exists on this planet, on this world, is is evil. It's evil wisdom, it's earthly wisdom. In fact, the the term earthly is actually synonymous with the term worldly. We see both those terms used in Scripture. We see the term earthly in Scripture. We see the term worldly in Scripture. And they are synonymous. They mean the same thing. They always refer to evil. And then you have, so that's earthly wisdom. And then you have heavenly wisdom. Wisdom, heavenly wisdom is is righteous wisdom because it comes down from heaven, the abode of our righteous God, the dwelling place of, of our righteous God. In fact, it's God Himself that 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 has this wisdom in Himself and that imparts it, and that it comes down to us from heaven. So you've got two kinds of wisdom that are listed in our text, and really that exist in the world. You have earthly, which belongs to the earth, it's evil, it it, it doesn't guide properly, it just guides you into more worldliness, more carnal behavior. And then you have heavenly wisdom, which comes down to us from heaven. And, and more particularly from the throne of God and from God himself. And that wisdom is pure and righteous and perfect. And it will never, ever, ever cause you to make wrong decisions or any of these sorts of things. It's just absolutely perfected. So those are the two kinds of wisdom. Third, and I think that this is very important for us to understand. Third, all people operate from a type or kind of wisdom. Why? Because all people possess knowledge and all people have the ability to respond to that knowledge. Okay, so it's very important that we understand that everyone has a kind of wisdom. Believers and unbelievers alike have wisdom. And we typically see A person behaving foolishly or making choices that are just unwise and destructive, and we call that person unwise. We say that that person doesn't have wisdom. What we should be saying is that that person has the wrong kind of wisdom. They do have a a kind of wisdom that guides their decision making and, and the way they respond to things. When we call a person unwise, we are not saying that they have zero wisdom. We are saying that they are operating from the wrong kind of wisdom. The difference between believers and unbelievers is not that one group operates from wisdom and the other does not. Both groups operate from wisdom. The difference is access and ability. Believers have access to heavenly wisdom and the ability to operate from it. Unbelievers have neither. They do not possess heavenly wisdom, nor do they possess the ability to operate in accordance with it. The beginning of true wisdom, or the beginning of, of maybe we want to call it heavenly wisdom, right? True heavenly wisdom. The beginning of it is what? The fear of God. Proverbs 9.10. You know where it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Since unbelievers do not fear God, they have zero access to heavenly wisdom and zero ability to exercise it. Now, this does not mean that they cannot obey the laws of the land or drive a motor vehicle safely or make it to L.A. in one piece. They can do all of the above. What it means is that whatever they do, however they respond to situations, whatever, whatever they do in life is reflective of the earth and its wisdom and its laws and its policies. It's all bound to the earth. In other words, they cannot, in their wisdom or decision-making, they cannot transcend their earthliness and the earth itself. They have no ability to go beyond that. They have no ability to tap into heaven's wisdom and operate in accordance with it. They just can't do it. So that was third, right? All people operate from a kind of wisdom... Fourth, our conduct, like think of your day-to-day conduct, how you live your life, how you respond to trials, how you function, how you operate, how you speak, whatever it is that you're doing, how you, um, how you process problems, how you determine what to do in a situation, right? That, that's, that's our conduct. It's kind of an all-encompassing, all-inclusive situation here. Our conduct affirms the kind of wisdom we operate from. If our conduct has the marks of what are mentioned, actually, in the very text that we're looking at, if our conduct is meek, which means gentle, if it's good, that means that it's pleasing to God, then what does it do? It affirms that we are operating from heavenly wisdom. If our conduct is the opposite of those things, right the exact opposite, overbearing, evil rather than good, and ultimately displeasing to God, it affirms that we are operating from earthly wisdom. Does that make sense to you? James is using pure biblical logic in this text to teach us this lesson. So if your conduct is good and pleasing to God, obviously you're functioning and operating from heavenly wisdom. If it isn't, you're you're operating from the opposite, earthly wisdom. Makes total sense, right? Now that we have a little bit better understanding of wisdom, now we can kind of get back to the text. The question James asked these aspiring teachers of God's word was really like a test, as I said. If these men that he's addressing here, if these brothers were operating from heavenly wisdom, what would happen? Their conduct would affirm the presence of heavenly wisdom. But if they were operating from earthly wisdom, what would show forth? Their conduct would affirm the presence of earthly wisdom. So conduct will show you where you're operating from or what you're operating from. Conduct is the fruit of whatever kind of wisdom you're tapped into or you're guided by. Think of it like that. Now we have to ask a question here. We've been studying this book and we've been studying these men for the last couple of weeks that James wrote to. What was their conduct like? What have we learned so far from the text? We have learned that their conduct was earthly. Their conduct was worldly. Right? In the previous section, James said they were blessing God during the worship services on Sundays. And then after the worship services, they would curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That, my friends, is earthly behavior. That is worldly behavior. That is sinful behavior. You cannot be praising God in a worship service and then leave and and curse out in your mind, in your heart, or even out the window, the guy who doesn't know how to drive in front of you. And and in the situation we have playing out in this text, it was much more serious than bad drivers. Like, man, this guy in front of me does not know how to ride a camel. That's not what was going on. It's not at all what was happening. It was that guy, they're talking about appointing that guy as a teacher of God's word. I hope that he dies so I can get that position. That's actually cursing a person. It didn't have to do with bad camel drivers, bad donkey drivers. Their behavior was earthly. It was... Worldly, and that's not the only example of it. Go back through chapter two and then reread chapter one. I mean, in chapter two, James has to question the legitimacy of their faith because they're showing satanic partiality. That as people come into their worship gatherings, those who are dressed really well and have the right cologne on, right? You know, Dracar, And they have jewelry on and all this. Those ones get the best seats. But the guy who comes in is like, ah, he just kind of came off the street. You go sit on the floor or sit in the corner. That's partiality. That's favoritism. Their behavior wasn't just earthly. It was Satanic. And I know James was scratching his head. He's in Jerusalem, I think, when he writes this. He must have been scratching his head. How could these guys even think about becoming teachers of God's word? They, they don't even get the basics. Where is their love? Where is their charity? So we know that their behavior, their conduct, was very, very earthly. What does the, I just told you, I just taught you, what does the presence of earthly conduct affirm? It affirms that these men were operating from earthly wisdom. Their whole conduct and lifestyle was just a, a regurgitation of that satanic earthly wisdom. They were acting like the earth and displaying the earth's wisdom. And yet this is another reason why James pumps the brakes back in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's like James is saying, I, I, I've, been, I've been heard about your behavior. I know what you're into. I know what you're doing. I know about the partiality. I, I know about the cursing men and all of that. Are, are you sure that this is the profession you want to enter into? Do you not realize that you are going to be judged more strictly just as I am? Maybe maybe you should keep working at Ancient Walmart, <laughs> at the bazaar—that's what it would have been called then, or the agora. Aspiring teachers of God's word must first learn to operate from heavenly wisdom, and their conduct will always affirm the kind of wisdom they operate from. I mean, this is like, you want to be a teacher of God's word? 101. I mean, just just think about this. Just Maybe I can bring it into our context here. If you you saw me, or the other elders, or maybe Brandon, who, who teaches here at RHC on occasion, if you saw any of us blessing God during our worship service, and then cursing people who were made in the likeness of God afterwards, would you not draw a similar conclusion to James? You would say to yourself, the conduct of Phil, Cameron, Bruce, hey, brother Bruce, and Brandon, is earthly. You would say, these guys are acting very worldly. Why are these teachers of God's word operating from earthly wisdom? Why are they functioning in in solidarity with a fallen earth and fallen world? You would think the same thing. And and believe me, there have been times where I have given my, my lovely, absolutely lovely wife, I love my wife, but I have given her more than enough reason to wonder what wisdom I'm tapped into. Who hasn't? And yeah, she's given me a little reason to wonder about her at times. But it's far more on my end. As I said earlier, this rule that we're talking about here, it applies to every aspiring teacher of God's word, every pre-existing or every existing teacher of God's word, and to all Christians in General, Yes, what I'm telling you today, you might think, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not going to be a teacher of God's Word. I don't teach it. I don't plan to teach it. I don't want to do any of that. I'd probably throw up if I went up on stage. Forget about all that. If you name the name of Christ, if you love Jesus, if you are a born-again believer, it applies to you. You yourself, as a regular Christian, are to always function from heavenly wisdom. So it applies to all of us. This is something that that comes automatically a little bit at the new birth, but it's something that we also have to learn, right? Because there are patterns and dependence on the earth that we have to unlearn after conversion. In fact, I think sanctification could be defined as the undoing of all that is worldly in our lives. I don't know about you, but I had 30 years on this earth to build all sorts of worldliness and earthly wisdom and all this garbage into my life. God has been steadily undoing it. And that's a painful process at times. But we are all, every true Christian, true believer must learn to function and operate from heavenly wisdom. And I think the best way to describe us as true believers, if you're a true believer, is that we kind of jump back and forth, depending on whatever scenario arises. We are as new creations totally drawn to heavenly wisdom to want to operate from that but because we still have flesh sometimes we press into earthly wisdom and we make decisions our circumstances are happening and we make decisions that are more in line with, with earthly wisdom and then what happens a little bit later wow okay that was another dumb decision that has just compounded my total situation if our conduct and I, I say just pretty regularly, not perfectly, but progressively and regularly. If our conduct is meek, meaning gentle, good, and pleasing to God, it affirms that we are operating from heavenly wisdom. But if our conduct is overbearing, you know, and that, that would be like you have the idea of just, just dominance over people and situations. If our conduct is evil, Sinful. If it's just ultimately on a day to day basis, moment by moment, just displeasing to God, it affirms that we are operating from earthly wisdom. If we behave like the men who are addressed in this letter, it affirms that we are operating from earthly wisdom. If we have partiality, if we have loose tongues that say all sorts of ridiculous things and praise God at the same time, if we curse men and praise God at church, if we do any of the things that they were doing, It affirms that we are, in fact, operating from earthly wisdom. Make sense? You get it so far? That's what James is presenting to us now. Now let's look at verses 14 through 16. He says this after giving them that testing question. Look, you guys, you got heavenly wisdom. Prove it through your behavior. Now he says this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unscriptural, or unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Here, James describes the kind of earthly conduct that is associated with earthly wisdom. He really identifies two character traits of earthly wisdom and earthly conduct, and that would be bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Those two things that he identifies are not just random generalizations. These are specific to this group who were aspiring to become become teachers. They had bitter jealousy over one another because they were vying for these positions, and they they were filled with selfish ambition as their as they're pursuing even recklessly the position of of teacher of God's Word, because they wanted to be like the rabbis around them. What is a rabbi? That's a Jewish teacher at the Jewish synagogues. I have no idea why any Christian would ever desire to be like a rabbi. Rabbis are cursed, because they don't teach Christ. They teach Judaism without Christ, which is not true Judaism. But they were filled with this selfish ambition and drive to become these teachers, wanting to be like the the wealthy and popular and, and, and noted rabbis of their day. And the bitter jealousy that they displayed between one another, it was just sickening. I mean, these things just don't make sense to us. Anyone who would pursue the office of teaching God's Word, how could they even be like this at all? Well, they're not supposed to be, that's James' point. The Greek word for bitter is pikros, and it means pointed, sharp, prickly, or pungent. The word picture associated with it is bitter water coming out of a fountain. In fact, James kind of pointed to that earlier when he talked about a salt, a salt pond producing fresh water, and he gave those different kinds of examples. James used it here metaphorically to describe the worst form of jealousy, Believe it or not, there's actually varying degrees of jealousy, and he used that phrase there, that term, P. to to just capture the worst kind of jealousy there is, that which is harsh, that which is sharp and, and cutting and, and destructive, having absolutely no concern whatsoever for the feelings or welfare of those that are or who are its subjects. The basic idea here is is, is fairly simple. Those who operate from earthly wisdom are inevitably self-centered, living in a world which their own personal ideas, desires, and standards are the measure of everything. Basically, they walk around as the standard for all greatness and measure everything out there against themselves. Whatever or whoever serves those ends are considered good and friendly, but whatever or whoever threatens those ends is considered bad and an enemy. Those who are engulfed in self-serving earthly wisdom resent anyone and anything that comes between them and their own objectives. Boy, anyone going to get in my way, I'll tell you, I'm going to let them have it. That's the mentality. Is our world not dominated by that mentality? Do we not see that, and I hate to say the word, but in the political realm, where it's displayed most? The phrase selfish ambition translates the single Greek word ertheia, or "eritheia," which connotes strife, contentiousness, and extreme selfishness. This word became closely associated back in that day with those who sought high political office or other positions of high influence and power. It was used of personal gratification and self-fulfillment at any cost, which are the ultimate goals of all fleshly endeavors. As I said, James is not generalizing here at all. He's not just plucking a subject and putting it in here and fleshing it out and expositing for their benefit. This is, there's no generalization here. These aspiring teachers were full of bitter jealousy, full of selfish ambition in their hearts. This is, this is real-world scenario playing out here. This, this is what these guys were doing. It's what they had. But instead of recognizing these sins, confessing these sins, repenting of these sins, turning away from this earthly behavior, jettisoning and and throwing out this earthly wisdom they were operating from, they boasted about it. They boasted about their pursuits, about their status, about their positions. And James says, because they did that, they became false to the truth. What does it mean to be false to the truth? What I think this is, is it's a kind of rewording of the contradiction in chapter 2, verse 14. And if someone says he believes the gospel, but he has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in his heart, he is being false to that gospel he professes. Oh, I'm in the gospel, but then this behavior totally contradicts what he's actually in. It shows that he's in the world. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, James told his audience that the Father brings forth his people by the word of truth, which we know is the gospel. The logic goes like this. If the Father brought us forward by the word of truth, the gospel... How can the contradictory sins of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition be present in us? We are being thoroughly false to the truth of the gospel, which is actually what redeemed and saved us. We are being a living contradiction to the gospel itself. That's what he's saying. If we have been brought forward by the word of truth... We will be true to the word of truth in word and in deed. Not perfectly, but progressively, meaning getting better and better at it. If someone says he believes the truth, but he has bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in his heart, he is being false to the truth. He is a living contradiction. He is a, in simplest terms, hypocrite. He professes the truth, but lives in a way that is in opposition to the truth, thus, the contradiction, thus, he's a hypocrite. That's what James is saying here. What does bitter jealousy and selfish ambition affirm the presence of? Well, look at what James wrote in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. In other words, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition affirm the presence of what? Earthly wisdom. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are earthly behaviors, earthly conduct. They belong to earthly conduct. They are expressions of earthly conduct. Therefore, they prove or affirm that these men were operating from earthly wisdom. And I want you to notice the extra descriptors that James added here. He is telling us that wisdom that does not come down from above is basically three things. It is earthly We've been talking about this already. To be earthly means that it is is of the earth, it is of the world and and restricted to, to things that man can theorize and discover and accomplish by himself. It has no place for God or the things of God. It has no place for spiritual truth, no place for true illumination or any of that. That's the first thing that it affirms there. Secondly, it is unspiritual. This basically means that it is of the flesh. And that it only relates to the fallen, unredeemed man who is wholly corrupted by the fallen, separated from God. Those who rely on this wisdom are worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter. Verse 19, spiritual things are what? Foolishness to this kind of person. They cannot understand spiritual things. They're just stupid to them. 1 Corinthians 2.14. So those are the first two things. The third is, it is demonic. What does this mean? It just simply means that it is of the devil. It is of the devil who was literally kicked out of heaven for the exact same sins. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, Ezekiel 28, 17. Lucifer became filled with pride and a desire to rise above God's glory and have glory that superseded God's glory. He had bitter jealousy of God, especially Christ, and he hates Christ. He hated Christ in heaven. He hates Christ now. And he, he was driven by selfish ambition. He managed to persuade one-third of the angels to follow him. And guess what? With one sovereign boot, they were all hurled out of heaven for the exact same sins that these Christian brothers were displaying. And since his descension, the devil has always promised wisdom to those he tempts asserting that God's word should be doubted and his own word should be accepted and followed. This is precisely what happened with Adam and Eve. Sadly, they accepted the devil's demonic offer of wisdom. They transgressed against God and plunged the entire creation into sin. Genesis 3, the whole chapter. According to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 through 3 the three great enemies of the believer are what the world the flesh and the devil wisdom that does not come down from above is characterized by all three of these things here in this te- or in Ephesians chapter 2 when those things are present, there will be disorder and every vile practice, James tells us. According to this letter, the congregation James wrote to had <laughs> bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Uh, they, there was no shortage of, of this kind of these vile practices and every kind of disorder in this congregation. It was all there at this church. There was a, a, an absolute dependency on earthly wisdom here in this body. And I know, I know this had to blow James's mind. Because many of these brothers that he wrote to had come from his church years before. It, it, it would be like... It would be like something happening in our church and it kind of, it has to disband and, and, and all of you guys kind of spread out and maybe become part of other churches or plant churches or do something like that. Because this is what happened in the persecution of Saul. And then, and then I hear about Tom. Tom, no offense, I'm going to use you as an example, but the Spirit's tell me don't do that. But I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> But just think of it, Tom goes, and, and Tom and I have had unbelievable fellowship, and we love each other, and, and we love the Lord, and we've pursued the Lord together. We have served the Lord together. We have studied Scripture together. We have done all these things together. Tom has displayed incredible heavenly wisdom. We can tell he's tied into it. The way he lives his life testifies to this. And then he moves about 75 miles away, and about 10 years later, I hear about this stuff being in his life, and I say, What happened, Tom? That had to be what was happening with James. I'm sorry, brother. I mean, why do I pick the biggest guy in the room? It shows that I'm tied into earthly wisdom right now. But if Tom, in the reverse, saw that of me, he would say, what happened, Phil? I know James is just heart-wrenchingly broken over what's happening with his old parishioners. Yeah, I know we had difficulty in Jerusalem. The church got bombed by Saul and we all went in other directions, but that does not give you license to live the way you're living. What are you doing? His church was just full of this stuff. Now let's move to 17 and 18. He says this, and here's here's the contrast. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, I, I bet James at this point would have put it all on the line to see this kind of conduct manifested in this congregation, because this is what it should have been. In these last two verses, James describes the kind of heavenly conduct that is associated with heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom, the wisdom that that comes down to us from God, from heaven, it is firstly pure. And, and, and here you get the idea of refined by fire, like when gold is refined in the fire, all the dross comes to the top and it's separated and the gold is, is made absolutely pure. And this carries with it that idea of purity. The wisdom that comes down from God has no imperfection, no stain, no existing dross, no smudge, no nothing. Bright, brilliant, perfect, radiant, Beautiful it is it is pure, and, and then he calls it peaceable it, it is it is a a peace carrying kind of wisdom when the person has heavenly wisdom. They, they function and operate in a peaceable way, especially in the midst of trials. And that's exactly what these men were going through. They were also going through some pretty devastating trials, were they not? There was all sorts of outside persecution, things happening on the inside. People were getting ripped off, scammed, not given their paychecks. We talked about all this. But this wisdom that comes down from God, this heavenly wisdom is peaceable. It, it makes peace. It is characterized by Peace, where earthly wisdom is characterized by what? Disorder. It is peaceable. It is, he says, gentle. There's the meekness of it. It it gently responds to trials. It gently responds to adversity. It, it gently guides and leads toward the goal. It is Gentile, And I think someone wants to find meekness as strength under control. Because meek does not mean weak. A meek Christian is not a weak Christian. A meek Christian is stronger than every other Christian who does not display meekness. Meekness, if you are a meek, gentle Christian, that shows that you've got... God has given you a certain level of power over your emotions over your thoughts. He has given you heavenly wisdom. Meekness is not a sign of weakness. It is strength and power under control. There never, never, ever in the history of the world been another person like Jesus who displayed this kind of meekness. Who on earth, after being beaten within an inch of your life and then nailed to a cross, would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I would have been like, does somebody have an Uzi? Think about the meekness of Christ, the gentleness of Christ when he's being beaten. Never been anyone like Jesus, not even close. And, and he, he was the embodiment of heaven's wisdom. He displayed heavenly wisdom at all times. There was never a moment where he did not, not even when he was severely tempted in the wilderness, not even when he was uh, dealing with the, the terror of God's wrath, probably more or less the terror of having all the sins placed on him when he was in Gethsemane. Even then, the flesh functioned in a certain way, but then he, he operated in accordance with heaven's wisdom. As he said, not my will, but your will be done. You just can't get him anywhere on it. He he just did it perfectly. Therefore, he's our Savior. It has a meekness. It has a gentleness about it. Heaven's wisdom does. It is open to reason. It's not bullheaded. It's not stubborn. If, If somebody reasons to a person who possesses heavenly wisdom, if somebody tries to reason Scripture to them, they listen. They're open to that. They are reasonable and open to reason. And reason is not a bad thing. Paul spent three years in Ephesus reasoning before the Jews from the Scripture. The person who has this wisdom is is open to reason. And, And look at this. It doesn't just say merciful. It says full of mercy. And they give mercy whenever they have the opportunity to give it. This kind of wisdom is just so... It, it's, it's God's wisdom, and God is ultimately merciful, is He not? It doesn't mean He's not just. He is, but He is merciful. If you are a believer today, it is entirely because of His mercy. And, and, and this wisdom is just full of this mercy. It is always willing to forgive, to reconcile. To try to work things out, to try to restore others. And he says it's also full of good fruits. We think of the fruit of the Spirit again in Galatians 5 22 and 23. We think of the, the fruits that come out of true salvation that are represented in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. A fruitful life, a life of good works works that are pleasing to God, that are glorifying to God, and ultimately helpful to men, even when they can't see that. He also says impartial and sincere. Heaven's wisdom is impartial and sincere. Well, first of all, what were these guys? Were they impartial or partial? Partial. They played favorites. They chose the the wealthy in the community over the poor. And that showed that they had earthly wisdom. Because heaven's wisdom, heavenly wisdom, is impartial. It is, it is characterized by the impartiality of God. God is not partial. And then, lastly, it is sincere. Sincere means true to itself. It means without hypocrisy. It means not double-minded. Singular in focus. Singular in 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 definition singular in meaning it is sincere it is true of itself heavenly wisdom is 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 all of the above everything that james listed here and 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 so much more because we have the whole counsel of god that speaks to it talks about it presents it and defines it how can we tell if we are operating from heavenly wisdom it's very very simple our conduct will be marked by the heavenly qualities James just listed here. I mean, this this is literally like nursery-level teaching. And yet, such a vast majority of veteran Christians don't get it. Is our conduct pure? Is our conduct peaceable or peaceful? Is our conduct... Gentle? And I would say these things begin in the disposition and attitude and then come forth from that. But are we characterized by these things? Are we open to reason or just insistent on our belief and our way no matter what? And we shut people down even when they're being reasonable? Do we handle situations reasonably? Are we merciful? And forgiving, because that's what mercy is. Mercy is giving forgiveness. Or are we grudge holders? Do we keep a nice little record in Rolodex of the wrongs that people have done to us? I know God forgets your sins and casts them as far as the east is from the west, which means they're just gone. But I tell you what, I got a nice record of them here. I remember March 2nd, 2018, when you did this. Mm -hmm. And they pull it up and show you and you're like, uh I thought you forgave me for that, Sally. You know? So did I. I guess not. Are we merciful and forgiving? And I, I, I mean in the truest sense. You know, when we forgive someone of, of some wrong they've done to us. And, I, and the, the, just so you know, that the term forgive and forget is an earthly wisdom term. That's not heaven's wisdom. There's things that people do to you that you will never forget. And then you might pulverize yourself trying to forget it. That's just, that's just bad philosophy. That's earthly wisdom that says that, forgive and forget. There, there are things that will happen to you or that you do to others that they're, they're just not going to be able to forget. But you can still forgive them. And forgiveness will also have to do with not rehashing that and bringing it up and pre- presenting it to them and re-presenting it to them and, and throwing it in their face. If you say that you have forgiven, I forgive you, Fred, for what you did. And then two months later, remember what you did, Fred? You haven't forgiven Forgiving is, is entrusting that hurt, the sting and that hurt, and that insult or assault, whatever it is. It is, it is taking it to the cross and giving it to Christ and forgiving that person, showing and giving mercy, and then you may never forget it fully, but you don't bring it back up and you don't harbor any feelings and you don't hold it against them. True forgiveness looks like the forgiveness of Christ, where I have cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. Just letting it go and getting rid of it. It's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Do we bear good fruits? Do we have fruitful lives? Are we impartial and sincere without hypocrisy? Pretty much have that kind of heaven. Heaven's wisdom gives you a kind of integrity, so you're pretty much the same guy or gal wherever you go. You're not like this super Christian on Sunday, then a buffoon Christian on Tuesday. You're, You're actually never a super Christian at all. But do you understand the point I'm making? That you're pretty much that godly person all the time. Doesn't mean you don't struggle. Doesn't mean you don't wrestle with sin. You you have been brought forth, as it says in the scripture here, by the word of truth, and you want to be true to that truth. That's what it means to be sincere. I've been redeemed and saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to be true to the Christ of the gospel. These are great questions to ask yourself. I mean, if our conduct is marked by the things that James listed here, the things that I've been going through right now with you, sharing with you, unpacking for you a little bit, if these heavenly qualities are there in our conduct, what does it affirm? It affirms that we are operating from heavenly wisdom. It's the point. That's the logic of this whole text. Lastly, notice what proceeds from peace in verse 18 What does peace produce? Peace produces a, and it's not just that you produce peace at times, it's when you preserve it and keep making peace. It produces a harvest of righteousness. Right behavior that pleases God, that is right before his eyes. I like what R. Kent Hughes wrote, and I'll kind of start ending with this quote here, but he said, Righteousness cannot be produced in the climate of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition fostered by earthly wisdom. Righteousness can only grow in a climate of peace. Closing. I've said it and I've said it again over and over and over. I know I'm a broken record, but I don't care because sometimes for me to get something and for it to actually click, I have to say it over and over and over to myself. Our conduct affirms the kind of wisdom we operate from. Our conduct is tied to that. It shows forth what we're tied to. Again, if our conduct is heavenly, it affirms that we operate from heavenly wisdom. If our conduct is earthly, it affirms that we operate from earthly wisdom. And I've said this in a, a few different ways. There are really no believers on this side of glory who maintain perfectly he- perfect heavenly conduct and therefore operate entirely from heavenly wisdom all the time. It just It's not going to happen for you. It's not something that you actually can do on your own. And there's only been one person in the history of the world that pulled it off, and that's Jesus. But James was totally aware of our predicament and our inability to maintain right heavenly conduct tethered to right heavenly wisdom he understands our predicament he understands the situation even with these men who are, i think in many ways over the top he understood this about us he understood that it's something that we pursue but it's not something that we can actually execute with a high level of precision at all times like i said earlier we kind of jump back and forth between those two different types of wisdom James was unaware of the, our inability, and that is precisely why he wrote chapter 1, verse 5. That's why he said this, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously, generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. At the same time that this is a goal, a lofty goal for us to aim for, we know that we cannot do it perfectly perfectly. James reminds us way back at the beginning of this chapter that this is something that we need to pursue, but we need to call out and cry out to God for it if we're not able to do it and when we're not able to do it. True believers know they cannot maintain perfect heavenly conduct or always operate from heavenly wisdom on this side of glory, but it's something that they in fact want to do there's a difference between being able to execute it perfectly and wanting to do it. We can't do it perfectly, but we want to do it perfectly. That's the difference. The true believer wants to operate all the time from Heaven's wisdom and wants to have heavenly conduct and please God in all that they do and say this is what we want. We want to be able to respond to trials and all of these things in a way that glorifies God and produces the best possible result. That's what we want. But we know we can't do it. It's so frustrating sometimes, right? That's why we cry out, go ahead, come Lord Jesus, come. Because we get so tired of this wrestling match. We get so tired of failing James says, hold on, dear brother and sister. Call out to God and ask him for wisdom. He will grant it. Why is it that the true believer desires to always to operate from heaven's wisdom and to have this heavenly conduct? Why is that? It's very simple. It's because we love God. And it's because we want to be true to the word of truth, true to the gospel. We have that inner desire to do that. It comes with true salvation. It is a mark of the Holy Spirit that's in us. And guess what else true believers will do? It's not just that they they want this, they do. They will actually follow James' instruction and ask God for heavenly wisdom. They will do it. They not, it's not just a desire. It is a pursuit. And they will cry out to God. They will follow James' example and cry out to God and ask Him for heaven's wisdom, ask Him for true wisdom, ask Him for divine wisdom. Why? So they can exhibit more and more heavenly conduct and navigate their way through life in a way that is meek, that is good, that is ultimately pleasing to God. That is our heart cry the true believer loves and cherishes heavenly wisdom. And he wants to, for it to abide in the, in the fullest way that it can, to abide in his heart and to become and be his own personal map to the celestial city. God, give me heaven's wisdom. Guide me through every, every part of life. Guide me by your wisdom in such a way that you are glorified in all that I do or say. Give me divine wisdom. Give me heaven's wisdom so that I can respond to trials in a way that brings you glory. That's what we want. Mark out this this road and this narrow path for me, completely dotted with with heavenly wisdom so that I can get from point A to point B in a way that brings you glory. That's the heart of the true believer. We are very much like Solomon in his early days. There are times where we just do not know how to make certain decisions or to deal with a difficult child or to deal with some of the things that life throws at us. I, I, am I resonating with anyone? Have you ever been put in a corner going, I don't know what to do? What I'm doing isn't working been there, done that. There are just times where we don't know how or what to do in certain situations. There are decisions that we have to make that are difficult to figure out. We have to respond to things. We have to react to things. And this happens all the time. And I think that's what Solomon was feeling as he realized, I've got to lead millions of people. (laughs) And I have to cause them to love God more, not less. How do I do that? How do I respond to this difficult child? How do I respond to this difficult decision I I have to make? How? What do we do? We cry out to God for wisdom. We say, God, give me wisdom. Give me heaven's wisdom. Give me heaven's wisdom. We say, pour out thy divine wisdom upon me, heavenly Father, for I know not what to do at this moment in my journey. Have you ever pleaded like that with God? There's probably nothing on earth. Well, there really isn't anything on earth that, that he delights in. But I say there's probably nothing within his people that brings him greater delight and joy that when they realize they can't figure out how to do something, that they actually come to him. That he... That brings him joy when his children do that. He has to say, I don't have time for you. I'm busy with something. He says, come, son or daughter, I will give you the wisdom you need. Wait a minute. Did I hear you pray that you desire to bring me glory in these things? You don't think that God is going to grant the wisdom so that they can bring him glory? God loves his glory. He will surely give that which we need to bring Him glory, all the wisdom we could ever ask for. But we must ask. We must humble ourselves. We must do that.